Well, hello, everyone, and thank you for joining another episode of Philosophy Exchange. My name is Carl, and I'm joined by Paula. Hello, everyone. I'm Paula Keller. I'm a PhD student at the University of Cambridge in philosophy, about to finish the PhD now, will be finishing hopefully within the next couple of months. And I'm working between political philosophy and epistemology. So I'm interested in knowledge about social injustices um, and how we can gain that kind of knowledge when we're living in a world where social injustices exist, but they also, importantly for me, shape our epistemic practices. So they shape whom we are inclined to believe, what we believe, who we take to be credible, how we reason, how we inquire, what we're interested in in the world, and they shape it in a way that makes it quite hard for us to find out about the social injustices that exist. So there's a bit of a sort of puzzle here that motivates my PhD project. And another part of the puzzle, perhaps, is Harry. And Harry, you come <laughs> to Utopia from a different angle. Do you want to yes, describe yourself? I am the puzzle, yeah. I am the, uh, uh, Harry Daniels. I am the awkward literary scholar on philosophy exchange, an imposter, really. Um, but uh, I've just finished my PhD at the University of Oxford. I'm also doing a bit of teaching now. And um, I'm obviously interested in, in, in uh, Utopias primarily from a from a literary angle, so I can ask you lots of awkward literary questions, I hope. So yeah, thank you for inviting me both. Well, and perhaps a good way to begin is by asking the question, what is a utopia? Right, so one thing to say is that utopias have a kind of public look from the from the outside, or it seems like utopias are something unrealistic, um, sort of castles in the sky, things that are impossible to realize, pictures we paint of a better future, where really we know that that future might not ever come. So this is a kind of pejorative sense of the word utopias that I think is quite common. And if you look at, say, media or politics, this is usually the way in which utopia, the word, has, is being used. But there might also be a sort of more positive, less pejorative, more affirmative sense of utopias, where utopia is just an ideal description or representation of a social world, of an alternative social world, where this is a social world that is in some ways better than the current one, and perhaps, say, it's a just world, or a world where we are free, or a world where, um, famously going back to Thomas More um, on, and, and his original book, Utopia, which sort of coined the term, that that would be a world where there is no private property, and therefore no poverty of uh, the the inhabitants in this world or on this island so most basically and sort of taking the pejorative sense away we can think of a utopia as a representation of a social ideal and that can be an imagined representation so a kind of story but it can also just be a list of features or say uh, a um, a constitution of an ideal state um, that doesn't give you the story that, say, Moore's story gives you. I like how you connected it also to the political philosophy. And I think that's really useful in the sense that so much of political philosophy deals with kind of what ought to be the case in a perfectly just you know, world. And we live in a very unjust world in many ways. And so any tools that we can use in the philosopher's toolkit as it were to help us realize a better world seems to me to be a good thing 
And maybe thinking about this a little bit more, um, you mentioned Rawls. I wonder if you could kind of introduce some of his work, which has been so uh, influential in political philosophy since the 1970s, and thinking about something like non-ideal theory. Right, yeah. So the way I'm thinking about utopias is within a context of the development in political philosophy that has happened maybe in the last 20, 30 years. And that's a response to John Rawls, as you say. And so John Rawls, influential political philosopher, really some say the sort of founding or, or maybe not founding father, but definitely somebody who who uh, resurrected political philosophy within the analytic tradition. Before that, people had declared political philosophy sort of dead, and it was unclear what job political philosophy, what, what job was left for political philosophy to do. And Rawls then developed a systematic theory that had both a vision of an ideal society with various principles of justice and also a kind of justificatory foundation. How, why, why is this ideal society really the ideal one? How can we prove that it is the ideal one? And then in, in the early roles, you get things that many people will probably be familiar with, right? Like the original position. So, and that's a way to justify or explain that the ideal principles he develops are indeed ideal principles of justice. And so now the criticism that comes from non-ideal theorists, people like Elizabeth Anderson, Charles Mills, and Amata Sen, is that maybe we don't need this ideal vision of society at all. And so Rawls would say, well, we might need it for at least two purposes. We might need it so that we can compare our current society and find out by this kind of compare and contrast sort of mismatching mechanism that some things don't fit. So the ideal society is different in various points than the current society. And that might tell us that there is something non-ideal or unjust deficient going on in the current society. So we might need the ideal society or the utopian vision as um, a way to find out about current deficiencies. That's one. And then the second way or functional role that utopias in roles might have is we might just need it as a plan to sort of work towards and work towards a more ideal society. So practical purpose. And now non-ideal theorists say that we don't need either of these. Um, we don't we don't need the utopia for either of these, for either the epistemic or the practical function. And I guess I'm on board with this general idea, but I'm not on board with the conclusion they draw from this, which is that we don't need utopian thinking in political life or in political philosophy generally. And I think that's because they miss one important third function that utopian thinking has. And that's not just telling us what's wrong with the current society or state, nor just telling us how to get to a better state or what the better state would be. But it's the third thing now, and that's telling us that what exists now need not exist. So there is an alternative possibility open. And I think oftentimes in when you're sort of looking around and thinking about common assumptions that people have about the social world or the, the state that they live in or the social conditions they live in, the social institutions, you often get a sentiment that goes a bit like this. So this is a sentiment of thinking 
that's just how it is. There's sort of nothing to be done. Mm. Um, and so my grandma has this sentiment, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and this is maybe, maybe one of the sort of more, more autobiographical roots through which I came to thinking about this topic. She has this sentiment where she thinks, well, um, there's always been rich and poor and some people just are poor, some people are just working class and then this is us and you've got to deal with it. And uh, I guess there is there is sort of similar sentiments like this almost everywhere. And in, in uh, Thomas More's Utopia, you also get the sentiment where uh, the people in this room in Amsterdam where they're discussing, they think this is just how it is some people have private property and can therefore farm the land other people don't have it and therefore they must starve there's nothing to be done about it so this kind of sentiment i think is fairly widespread and now my thought is that well utopian thinking can really the the main function of utopian thinking is to push against that kind of sentiment so this is an idea that's not exclusively mine but it's also an idea that comes up say in in Paul Ricoeur's lectures on ideology and utopia, he says that um, utopias have this function to push the boundaries of the possible and fantasies of what could be, um, he thinks, can be the, he says something like the most formidable contestations of what is. So it's quite a plausible idea, um, but I think non-ideal theory, which is this quite prevalent strand in political philosophy at the moment, has somehow overlooked it. Yes, well, well said. And Harry, I just wonder from your perspective, kind of what questions that kind of provokes from the literary angle when just an understanding angle? Well, I was wondering whether there might be a more kind of like sophisticated version of the um, of the grandma position, which I might take up now, which would be one thing that worries me about um, utopias often is that not that they kind of, you know, provide us with visions of different ways of living, but often they can, uh, you know, give us visions of living in which there is no uh, conflict, in which politics itself has ended because it has been solved. And so I wonder whether, you know, utopian literature might be, you know, one form we can think about, but literature more generally, which gives us alternative ways of life, but often the most interesting literature also has some sort of conflict in it. I mean, one of the jokes one might make about a kind of utopia like um, William Morris's News from Nowhere, that there really is no news. It's, you know, it's all ended. <laughs> I think one of the, one of the, one of the kind of um, problems with that, I think, is that, you know, when Morris is writing in the late nineteenth, like, you know, late nineteenth century, there is a point in which that is an inspiring political vision, which then goes on to to inspire political kind of reforms. But a lot of critics of of this particular tradition, which I'm perhaps more like you know, uh, which, which I'm my thinking is more grounded, um, is that it also just kind of provides a kind of little anodyne to you know the kind of anxious middle classes that we can go back to some sort of kind of you know medieval fantasy land with socialist principles or something and it actually has it doesn't stimulate political action but possibly mm. even it and i think there's there's something to be thought about there with is there a, if we are thinking about utopias there are going to be better and worse ones and for me i think a useful utopia might be a utopia that's actually very conflicted but has better problems than we have you know, in some sort. Of... So I was wondering if that that kind of yeah, I I I I'm in defence of the grandma to some some degree. I guess. <laughs> yeah, good, good. So the thought is kind of utopias would be or one kind of utopia would be incredibly boring, right? Yeah. 
but it might be boring in such a way that it fails to be realistic. I guess that's also the thought, right? So there would be conflict to some extent, maybe an inevitable part of, of human society. And there will always come conflicts that were sort of unforeseen or overlooked when we were planning the utopia. So that trying to plan a utopia that would be perfectly ideal in the sense of not having conflicts, but everybody sort of going on living in the most perfect way is maybe an unrealistic aspiration sort of from the start. In the paper, that's sort of the basis of this uh, this discussion. I'm thinking about exactly these sorts of problems about unrealizability. And I'm thinking that one solution, one possible solution might be a kind of downscaling. So mm, this is what I was just going to ask you on. So right, right. So the paper is <laughs> called time. Local Utopias um, and downscaling in the sense of that we look not at an ideal society or an envisioned ideal society with all its many practices and areas of human life in it, but just at one particular practice or one particular norm. And often, so this goes back to the grandma again, the problem with my grandma was not that she thought that everything about society was sort of inevitable and had to be this way, but she picked out one particular thing. And this is the fact that mm. she was poor or that some people will just have to be poor. So then the thought is that there could be a kind of local utopia, a vision of, say, economic relations that are structured differently, where these economic relations are envisioned in one way, but we don't say all that much about sort of other areas of social life or political mm. life, or family life. You might say that these visions could have this function of telling us that something is contingent without without sort of biting off much more than they can chew without proclaiming to have found the one perfect solution yeah. that would depict an ideal society where there is no conflict and where everybody is supremely happy all the time. Yeah, on this discussion with the, the grammar, I think it's absolutely right that this is so frequently in ordinary kind of life, you know, outside the academic bubble, as it were, where this type of grammar attitude is taken up. Um, you know, I, I certainly don't think it's just in the instance of this one particular grammar that is like Paula's grammar, where this, <laughs> <laughs> where this view is held. Really, um, I'm just writing this paper as, an, <laughs> as a reply to my grammar. <laughs> argument five years ago. Your greatest critic. <laughs> she better read it. I guess I think that funny I don't want to dwell too much on the grandma but I think the grandma is useful in a way because you know I'm I'm, I'm guessing that your grandmother is older than you and um, <laughs> there is, um, there's, there's some degree in which you know I think utopian thinking can be useful at certain times of life and, and not others right when the when the world is kind of all before you and you have the kind of um, you know kind of political kind of uh, well the kind of you know psychological energy to change things I have a feeling that you know like utopian thinking would do wonders for for someone who's who's kind of got their life I mean it's a very kind of you know kind of a uh, personal way of thinking about it but the, the life kind of before them and anything can change but I guess if you have utopian thinking and you are in a situation which feels completely like you know Un unchangeable like possibility has has decreased for what you can do and, and what sort of world you could see from change happening I guess there's something there's something about the way that that the utopian thinking kind of functions at different points of our life as to whether it has a kind of noxious 
or or a kind of useful useful effect, I guess, and kind of situated way of thinking about whether these are useful. And I guess you're right. My grandma probably won't uh, won't see the day where there won't be poor or exploited people anymore. But I probably also won't see that day, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so in that sense, maybe her utopian thing or her absence of utopian thinking is exactly what I ought to do about this particular area as well, because you might say is it's just unlikely that either of us will have this utopian thought and thereby be inspired to successfully act in such a way that poverty will be eradicated. I guess here I'm thinking... That, well, first, this needn't be the case for any kind of utopia. And even for this kind of utopia, you might think utopian thinking is helpful because maybe I won't achieve poverty being eradicated, but maybe I'll sort of go some way towards that goal or go some way together with others towards that goal. But then a second idea, and that's perhaps a just a bit more humble idea, is just the thought that knowing the modal facts might be important. So by modal facts here, I mean knowing whether something is to some extent necessary, whether this is really the only way we could organise society or whether there could be alternative modes of organisation and what these alternative modes of organisation look like. And this is important, not just sort of for epistemic purposes, so not just that you you know what goes on and you might think sort of knowing what goes on is itself valuable, but you might also think it's important for kind of interpersonal attitudes. So things like praise and blame or holding people responsible. So when we know that things could be different, might say, well, maybe this government minister who just increased taxes for the poor, but didn't increase taxes for the rich, he's responsible for something. He's responsible for this action he could have done differently. Whereas if you think, well, being poor and being rich, those are to some extent just inevitable categories, then it doesn't matter all that much whether he's sort of made it a bit worse for the poor and a bit better for the rich. So he's perhaps less to be blamed. So in that sense, modal knowledge about sort of alternative social possibilities is important for these epistemic purposes. Just knowing is a good thing, but also for these sort of moral purposes, evaluating other people's actions. Mm. I, I was going to say you, you had this quote in, in one of your papers by Ricoeur, imagination itself through its utopian function has a constitutive role in helping us rethink the nature of our social life. I think that really speaks to what you were mentioning here. Within the social political role that so many people kind of take on, whether it's their social political role in their job Perhaps, um, you know, a lawyer will act in a lawyer even throughout the rest of their life, for example. And that's kind of their lens through which they, they view the, the world. A utopian lens, the imagination along with that, can help that lawyer to think maybe in a non-lawyer way. And as it pertains to some kind of bad things that happen social, social politically, um, it seems really beneficial to have kind of local utopias. Kind of what kind of local utopias might be good within our society? What are some practical examples? Because, you know, let's say a politician, a policymaker, a social worker might want to take up and say, yes, Paula, like that's a really good idea. And I will try and think on a local utopia to make this world a you know, better place 
One example that I came across that I find quite interesting is the Wages for Housework campaign in the 1970s, and I guess predominantly the US or New York on the East Coast. Um, and Silvia Federici is one of the people who is wrote about this or was, was involved in the campaign. So the basic idea of the campaign is that uh, women ought to be paid for the housework they do. And this sounds quite like a small change in um, the social organization. So the thought is, well, the government should, should pay women for the housework that they do, much like a civil servant, for example, also receives a wage from the government. And now you might think that this is not... So So the first thing to say, I guess, is that it's clearly a local utopia. It only looks at ideal organization of the domestic sphere of the household. You might even think it's sort of too local. It only looks at this one sort of small change. And then you might think, well, is it really utopian if we pay women wages for housework, will that, the thought is that this is a feminist measure and or, or a sort of radical feminist measure, so inspired by sort of Marxist ideas about wages and capital and exploitation as well. Will it really change all that much if we just pay women for the housework they do? Won't it still be the case that women will do most of the housework, that therefore they will be sort of unfairly treated in the home or exploited in the home. I like this example because there's sort of a lot more lurking underneath the surface if you look at it more closely. And these women who campaigned or started this campaign wages for housework did look at it more closely. And they understood this demand as not just a demand for a wage, but with that demand came also the idea that once women are paid for housework, they get the status of a proper worker. And with that comes um, respect, with that comes yeah. security, sick pay, or also the right to refuse to do the work. So there's a real kind of shift in status. The housewife becomes what the worker is. And with that, she also gains all of the the radical political ideas or the radical political status that a worker might have from a left-wing perspective, where they are someone who can strike or refuses to work or is fed up with capitalism. So, so in this one simple demand of wages for housework, you still have a local proposal, but in it, there is, I think, a lot more that is utopian than it seems on the face of it. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder. I wonder whether I could ask you about because one of the one of the things that this just kind of made me think about is um, just how much emotional labour goes on in the in the home. But one of the strange things about that, if you imagine a campaign that was campaigning for emotional labour to be paid, it would kind of fundamentally change the the ways in which we would think about kind of interpersonal relationships. The the mother would become a or the mother or the father would become a kind of a therapist rather than mother and father. And I obviously. Housework is late is it's definitely labor, but I wonder whether you know there's other forms of more ambiguous ones, whether that I mean has that been thought about in this kind of way? Because there's something about that kind of utopian thinking that everyone be rewarded for the kind of emotional labor they do, which seems to not be something we'd actually want to do. We don't want to pay anyone to love us. What it seems to do is it seems to be more of a kind of revelatory act, which is saying, hey, look at all this that, that goes on and isn't kind of respected. In these manifestos that these women wrote uh, in the 70s, they do think of housework more broadly. They don't just think of it as the cooking the breakfast and cleaning the house. But So here's a quotation from, um, from 
one of these manifestos. From, from the viewpoint of work, we can only ask one, ask not one wage, but many wages, because we have been forced into many jobs at once. We are housemates, prostitutes, nurses, shrinks. It is the essence of the heroic spouse who is celebrated on Mother's, Mother's Day. And we say, stop celebrating our exploitation, our supposed heroism from now on. We want money for each moment of it so that we can refuse some of it and eventually all of it. So they do think of various different kinds of the work that women do in the home as housework, and they want sort of wages for all of it. And then I guess your thought, Harry, is that this is a proposal that's not utopian anymore, but almost dystopian, that that gets rid of a lot of what is of value in the small institution or the, the, the family as a unit. I guess this might then be a sort of a criticism against their their proposal, their local utopia proposal. And so this is maybe where, where it's interesting to think about what the task of the philosopher is. And so at least I'm thinking of sort of my relation to utopian thinking and so on as someone who points out that in political life, there is a room for utopian thinking and an important function and it has an important function, but I'm not thinking so much of myself as the person who then does the, the utopian thinking. I think this is something that's a democratic or that ought to be a democratic and collective effort where we're trying to figure out what ideal society is or what ideal sort of social practices we want to have. We're trying to do that sort of collectively or discursively in a, a democracy or a civil society and not so much just in the seminar room. I think it's interesting because I think, you, yeah, I think I'm not, not not necessarily sure that it'd be whether dystopian would be a useful way to think about it, because, of course, the response to the, the patriarchy at the time was itself dystopian. Right. So there'd be a kind of like, you know, in demanding money for acts of service and love. That does seem dystopian, but, but you know, the, what it was reacting to was a kind of dystopian setup anyway. So I guess that one thing I'm interested in is, is in, it, in that example, there is a kind of something that's actually quite pragmatic about, about the utopian aspiration, because it says money, you seem to understand. I'm going to demand money for this when actually that seems an important thing to do in a kind of, you know, something that reveals something about the structures of society. But I guess that one thing I, I, I'd be interested in is it doesn't go the next utopian step, which would be to be that we could value without valuing something economically. Mm-hmm. I see why that would be avoided because you go into kind of lots of sentimental kind of, you know, um, almost cliches that would then reinforce the patriarchy. So I think it's a very difficult type rope to walk. But I wonder whether, yeah, I wonder whether that that is... I don't know, there's something strange about that particular example when you when you push it onto childcare. Because if you think about child development, if the mother saw every or the father or carer saw every interaction with the child as a future investment, you know, there was going to be financially returned. It would be an awful uh, upbringing. And there's something about it that just the economic model just does not work. And I know that actually Foucault actually says that the economic model does work with the mother infant. I remember reading somewhere, but but I do I think it do, it is it does kind of reduce it to absurdity there, which which reveals something even more interesting than the original supposedly utopian aspiration, which is about how we value things more generally. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, you might also think that that it and perhaps this is the Foucault line that thinking about it in terms of money, explicitly in terms of money unearths or unveils that these sorts of relations that mothers 
have to their children in patriarchal society have something transactional to it yeah. so the the dad goes to work um, yeah. and the money that will feed the family and therefore he gets this kind of the reproduction of his labor and the reproduction of his labor in the next generation he gets it back and this is how how these feminists in the 70s in the wages for housework campaign speak so they use this sort of explicitly marxist language about labor and reproducing labor um and the the reproductive task is the the labor that women do. So um, women's labor is reproducing everybody else's labor. What would be useful is to ask a couple of questions, one to you, Paula, and one to you, Harry. I think the, the question I would ask you, Paula, is what challenges have you found in this argument as you shared it with, with others? This idea of local utopias what do you think is is one of the difficulties? Do you want me to reveal the, the weaknesses of my own? <laughs> yeah, and then and then to you, Harry. What I want to ask is, what uh, questions does this spark from your perspective? Mm-hmm. Thinking on utopias, and also knowing that part of your dissertation was written on utopias, a different mm-hmm. um, facet of utopias, perhaps. I mean, some of the questions that that you both or Harry and and you Carl just raised uh, are, are definitely questions that I've been thinking about questions both about sort of the examples in particular questions about the the perfection of utopias where they then seem to be sort of quite static and so I've been thinking about whether there might be something like sort of dynamic utopias utopias where you that are where, where the, the process of developing a utopia is just a kind of endless process. You're always sort of thinking and reflecting on whether some of the features you've assumed might not be improvable and so on. So, so thinking about alternative possibilities in a more open-ended way might also deserve the name utopia or utopian thinking. And it might then be, this might help to answer some of these objections about the stable utopia or the utopia that has dystopian function uh, features. And, and one of the interesting critiques which I would just kind of add on here is this one by Adorno which I think has been discussed in the, in the past which is that we might not have the tools to reach an ideal position. No I was just thinking that um, well, what, what Paul has been kind of um, saying has been really useful to me because I think that one thing that that case of the um, the demanding money for housework very much resonates with me because it's about what the utopian thinking functions as and there it you know wasn't intending to be something that was going to be program uh, you know programmatically kind of installed across the country by force it was about an act of of seeing the world differently which reveals something so I think the kind of so yeah, in my, yeah, in, in my own think, I'm always interested in what ideals seem to do, whether they seem to kind of, you know, we use ideals to kind of almost punish ourselves or kind of restrict ourselves or whether they're doing something that that works, that keeps us in process. And I guess the that kind of what you're saying about the static utopia being something that almost kind of, you know, is stultifying and the other kind of utopian thinking, which just seems to pierce through something and just kind of cut through lazy bad thinking a kind of lack of imagination that kind of focus on what it pragmatically functions in within a society or within an author's life if you're thinking about literary ones or or within you know on a reader I think that feels really important and a more kind of open-ended something that can 
a kind of utopian society that can kind of welcome the stranger with their with their new demands, with their new kind of uh, particularity we have to kind of reconcile with. That seems a really desirable place. And I guess I guess the only kind of question which kind of haunts us is, is that still a utopia? I don't know. Or, or is it something different? I think, I, I, yeah, so I, I guess that might be a, yeah, something to... Yeah, it definitely has a utopian element still, right, which is just this element of thinking about an, a social alternative that is in some way better yeah. or at least striving towards an ideal. Yeah, well, maybe maybe I can pick up on this point about the, the wages from for housework campaign that Harry just mentioned, that for them it's really about exposing that particular ingrained assumptions about how the family is to be organised or how work is to be organised, that they need to be shattered, that they can be different. And I have a, a good quotation from, from one of these pamphlets again, where Sylvia Federici writes that to demand wages for housework is by itself the refusal to accept our work as a biological destiny. So this is really the line she's pushing. This is not a biological destiny. Mm. Things could be very different and therefore we're imagining this utopia. I just want to say on my behalf, you know, what a privilege it is to have this conversation <laughs> Yeah, and I want to thank you, uh, Paula, particularly, and also you, Harry, um, for being present in this conversation. Thank you, Carl. Thank, thank you, Paula. It's been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, Michi, thanks so much. for. Well, that's the conclusion of this episode. Uh, thanks so much for listening, and we we'll look forward to speaking to you again on the next episode. Take care.